Amen, church. All is well. You may go ahead and have a seat. And as you do, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew 2. Well, I'm curious. I want to get to know you guys a little better. We're still a young church. Uh, how many of you guys celebrated New Year's by actually staying up to 12 in our time zone? Okay. I assume the rest of you celebrated by sleeping. Okay, that's good. We've got about a 50-50 split. I was kind of curious about our, uh, our personality as a church. Um, anyway, it's good. It's fun to embark on a new year. Uh, new year, but with the same hope. Our hope is always and only in the work of Christ. And that is why all is well. And we can sing that last line of that song. No matter what our external circumstances may be, all is well. Because our eternity, our ultimate good is secured by his work for us. And we are going to see that today uh, through a particular angle in Matthew's gospel from Matthew 2. We are going to be looking at a story that we typically call something like the story of the wise men. Story of the wise men. It's pretty broadly known thanks to Christmas and pop, pop culture surrounding it. But broadly known is not the same as well known. In fact, a lot of the stuff that's broadly known is wrong, as we'll find out. Um, in a lot of ways, the kind of popular idea of the story of the wise men is basically an exotic, expensive baby shower. You know, some, you know, some fancy guys from a long way away come with really expensive gifts and celebrate a baby. And, and that's kind of, put a little bow on it, and it's a nice little kid's story. But it is so much more than that. Right, we, we're missing the very heart of it if that is all we see. It's more than a souped-up baby shower. So what I want to do, how I want to tackle this for us, is I want to read through the whole narrative, and then I'm going to go back through it and slow us down and kind of draw out and paint out some of the stuff we miss when we just read over this and we just assume we know a lot of stuff. I'm going to kind of help you see some of the things that we can easily miss so we can understand what is actually going on here. And then we're going to talk about what it means, because the Bible, God didn't give it to us just to tell us fun, interesting stories, not even true, historic, fun, and interesting stories. He gave it to us to reveal himself to us and to give us all we need for life and godliness. So it's not just the story we need to hear. We need to know what that story means, right? What does it point us to, and what kind of response does it elicit from us when we understand it rightly? So that's what we're going to walk through, but we're going to start by just hearing the word of the Lord this morning. Matthew 2, we're going to do the first 12 verses. This is the word of the Lord. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, And search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, revealing yourself to us through it. We thank you for what you show us about Jesus through this particular passage, Lord. And I pray that you would open our eyes, uh, Lord, that you would give us the faith to see what you intend for us to see here, to see Jesus for who he really is, to see your king for who he really is, and to be compelled by your word, through your spirit, to respond to him as we ought to. I'm going to pray for this help in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so the passage kind of gives away what it's really about in the very first sentence. It's kind of subtle, but if we just pause and think for a moment, it, it'll stand out. The first sentence here says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. All right, so what we've already seen in Matthew is that Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's this messianic king in the line of David that Israel's been waiting for. Jesus is a king. And in this first phrase, we have this, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Jesus, a king, is born in Bethlehem during the days of Herod the king. Now, we're Americans. We don't interact a lot with kings. But there aren't usually two kings. That's not how kings work. Right? There's a king, and then there are rivals, and the rivals get put down. Like, there's only one king, right? So this, this phrase right from the beginning shows us that there's what's going to happen, right? What we are running into, what we're running into in this passage, it's not a fancy baby shower. It is a clash of two kings. It is a conflict between two kings. That's what we're about to bear witness. That's what God is showing us here. The wise men are really, they're really not the focus of the story. They're the flashpoint. They're the trigger, right? They go to the guy who's the sitting king, and they show that there is this other king. And that sets in motion this string of events. There's a king who's now threatened because there's a rival king. And that is what this passage is about, this conflict of kings. As we see this conflict play out, we're going to see so much about who Jesus is and the nature of the kingdom of God, and about ourselves and how we relate to this king and this kingdom. To start, let's just walk through the story and just try draw it out a little bit. And let's start with the guys we normally associate with the story, the wise men, right? We find them right at the very beginning, the first verse. These wise men come from the east to Jerusalem. And they go, to Jer- they go to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and they go to Herod. And they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So who are these guys? Who are these wise men? We usually think of it along the lines of the Christmas carol, right? We three kings of Orient are, right? Or our nativity scenes. We've got the three guys with their three little gifts and crowns. And pretty much all of that is wrong, uh, historically, um, these guys, there were at least two, but nowhere in Scripture does it tell us there were three of them. That just became part of the tradition because there's three specifically named gifts. But there were absolutely more people traveling with them 
because you wouldn't make the kind of trip they made with just three people with this kind of expensive stuff. You're going to get mugged and robbed, and you're not going to make it back then. It's a little different. Okay, so there's more than three. Absolutely, there's more than three people in the party. We know there's more than one, but that's all we get. We don't get the details about how many there are. Right? And they're definitely not kings. The, the word that gets translated here for their identity has nothing to do with being a king. Um, that is just something, again, that kind of got worked into tradition over time, in part because of the gifts they bring are royal gifts. But they are not kings. They might have been served in courts, served kings, but they themselves aren't kings. And then there's the other thing we call them, wise men, right? That's even up for debate a little bit as we get further into the story, uh, how much wisdom they actually have. We'll talk about that as we go along. In some ways, they're wise. In other ways, they're pretty naive, uh, as we'll see. So if that's who they aren't, who are they? Like, what, who are they? Well, the word is, you know, so the, what we sometimes call them is magi. And that's the actual Greek word for, for who these guys were, magi. It's the same root that we get our word for magic, right? It doesn't mean these guys did card tricks, though, right? What, what this comes from is these guys were, they did a lot of different things, right? It got used for priests in this ancient Persian religion called Zoroastrianism, right? They called their priests magi. It was also used for those who um, studied the stars, right? So, like, not, not in the astronomy sense of, like, let's go look at Mars, but in the astrology sense, more like horoscopes, that kind of thing. What do they mean? This moved over here. What does that mean? This now means this is going to happen in the future. Signs. They interpreted dreams, right? We saw this in the book of Daniel, right? Israel's taken captive. Daniel and his friends serve in the court of the king. And the king has these guys who serve him and attend him. And he has dreams, and he calls these guys in to interpret them. And they can't. And so they call Daniel and... Things roll on from there. So that's one of the other places we see the Magi, one of the other things that they did. So they were very much tied to this kind of guys who sought out this kind of esoteric hidden knowledge kind of stuff, whether it's through dreams, signs in the sky, sorcery at times. That's another thing that they're associated with. So they weren't well thought of in Israel because sorcery was very much prohibited in the Levitical law. But that's kind of the... the basic understanding of kind of who these guys are. They're mostly kind of like astrologers, which makes sense with the rest of the story, right? Because why do they end up here anyway? They happen to be studying the sky, and they saw something, right? Now, it's pretty clear this wasn't like some giant green, giant green fireball that everybody saw and said something crazy is going on, right? It's not like the whole country came and traveled here, right? These were people who looked at the sky, were looking for things, and they saw something that stood out, all right? And this is really kind of a neat thing that we see about God and the way that God works through, through means. These are pagan Gentile guys who, who really have no idea about the God of the Bible. They, they practice this other way of finding secret knowledge. They don't trust God's revelation. They maybe know some stuff from Israel's captivity in Babylon, if they're associated, if they're from there, which is one of the places they might be from. So they might have some residual stuff coming back from there. But it's amazing to see how God, what was God wanting to do? He wanted to draw them to his son. And so what did he do? He communicated them through the things they already knew in a way that drew them to him. They saw something in the sky that was so significant that they dropped everything and set off on this dangerous, long we're talking like minimum 600 miles, 
could have been up to like 1,200 miles on foot or camelback, horseback, some kind of riding something, right? Slow process through the desert. This is dangerous. This is hard. They uprooted everything to go do this, right? And God gave, them to, gave this to them. He got them to Jesus through things they don't understand. And this is so kind because this is just a small way of like, this is how he works with us right? There's none of us that in and of ourselves have what it takes to just kind of grasp who God is, what he's calling us to, unless he reveals it to us, right? And this is just another reminder of that God works through means, and when he intends to draw you to his son, he does it, and he will do it. And so it's a beautiful picture and example of that. Now, now what exactly it looked like, we don't know. Um, there's some People who think it was, a combina- it was probably a combination of natural and miraculous kind of stuff. There was a, based on some of the astrological information we have outside of Scripture, there were certain things that kind of represented, and there was a certain phenomenon in the sky that happened in 7 BC that might have talked about a Jewish king in Palestine being born. It was a combination of Saturn and Jupiter both being in this one constellation at this particular time. And that they thought each of those represented something that kind of conflated into this, right? So it may have had something to do with that. It might have just all been miraculous. But whatever it was, God communicated to them that this is huge, that this king is coming, and this is a big deal, and you should drop everything to go and to see him. He gave them enough conviction to send them off in this long, dangerous enterprise. Just the last thing we should note about them. They're from the east, right? They are Gentile Pagan guys from another country, most likely Babylon or Persia. This seems the most likely, maybe Arabia, which is a little bit closer, but probably Babylon or Persia. If it was Babylon, that's in modern-day Iraq. It's about 600 miles away from Jerusalem and Bethlehem. If it's Persia, we're talking more like 1,200 miles. So this was like a, if everything went well, on the short end, we're talking about a month-long trip. If on the longer end, like two months, if anything goes wrong, even longer than that. So this was not a little ordeal. This was a big exercise, a, a huge um, endeavor to take on that the wise men did. And they're going through a lot of desert and a lot of really desolate land. So this is a challenging thing. So let's move on from the wise men. And, and one of the reasons I said it's questionable about whether we should call them wise men or not is because of the next thing we're going to talk about. The next thing we're going to talk about is Herod, King Herod of Israel. And Herod's an interesting cat. Um, we know a lot about him. He was pretty famous, infamous in his day. So there's a lot of stuff written about him by historians outside of Scripture as well. But let's read verses 3 and 4 again, and we'll talk about Herod, who he was. So when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Right? He, a king hears about another king showing up. He's a little bothered by that. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. All right, so let's talk about Herod. Very well known, very successful, right? He was not a king in the sense of he didn't have any royal lineage or anything like that. His father, he's actually an Edomite. He descended from Esau, not from Jacob, so he's not even an Israelite. But his father converted to Judaism became friends with some very high-up movers and shakers in Rome. And that, those relationships kind of carried down to Herod. And when there was a rebellion in Judea and Palestine uh, during, during Herod's time, Rome appointed 
Herod as their chosen king and tasked him with putting down the civil war, winning it on behalf of Rome. And he did. He defeated this guy named Antigonus and kind of secured Rome's claims to the area, for which they were very thankful. And they set him up as essentially their client king over the area. So this was not, Herod's not the people's king, right? He's the overlord's king. He's the guy who's put there to kind of keep things in line. So that's who he is. So he is very successful. He's very good at just kind of pragmatically getting things done. He's Machiavelli before Machiavelli existed. He's not loved, but he is hated, and he gets done what he needs to get done. Now, the events that we're reading about here happen towards the end of Herod's reign and his life, uh, around probably, he dies in 4 BC. Jesus is born in either 5 or 6 BC, roughly. So this is like maybe a year before Herod dies. And Herod has a long established track record at this point of how he handles political rivals, because he's had many. He's not popular. He's not a Jew. Rome set him up. This is, this is not a guy that people love. So there's been lots of people who thought it would be a great idea to overthrow him and take his spot. Well, Herod doesn't let any of that get any traction. There was actually a saying in his day that it was better to be Herod's pig than it was to be his son because his sons died at a higher rate than his pigs did. If there was any inclination that somebody might possibly be a threat to his throne, he killed them. The Jewish historian Josephus talks about how he was basically inhumane, successful, violent, lucky. This is this list of descriptors. Basically, the guy's a horrible person, but he just comes up aces with everything. He knows how to play the political game. He's always one step ahead of the guys who want to take him out. He always gets the best of his enemies, and he gets a lot of stuff done. He builds out the temple, makes it bigger, more glorious. He gets a lot of things done, but he's a horrible, horrible, horrible human being. And maybe one of the things that best illustrates it is something that happened right towards the end of his life. And this is good because this is a similar time frame towards what's going on, and it shows how this guy operated and just how deranged he was. So he got together this gathering of, of prominent people throughout Israel. He's got all the movers and shakers, the people that, the, that everyone looked up to, that were influential. He gathered them all together for a party. But the guest list was not just a guest list. It was a hit list. He got all these people together, and he told his son and daughter-in-law, hey, when I die, execute all these people. Well, why? These weren't enemies. Why do you say this? Well, as I said, he wasn't well-loved. And he was afraid that when he died, he would not be mourned the way somebody of his glory and stature should be mourned. So his solution to this was kill all the bunch of people that everyone does love when he dies so that there'll be this incredible mourning throughout Israel that he can get a piggyback on and it will reflect his gloriousness. Right? That's the kind of guy we're, we're dealing with. Right? So this is why I said this throws into question the wise men's wisdom a little bit, right? Because they roll up into, this guy is well-known. He's ruled for something like 30 years now. He's got a reputation. And they just roll into Jerusalem. They're like, hey, where's the new king? To the guy who kills everybody who even thinks about being king. Like, probably should have taken a beat and thought this through a little bit more, right? And so, and this is why all, it says all of Jerusalem is distressed with him. 
they're not necessarily distressed about a different king. They're distressed because they have no idea how Herod's going to happen to respond to this one, right? You never know how far he's going to swing, you know, in, in dealing with this kind of thing. Right? He, goes, he goes big. He doesn't mess around. So the wise men, they naively believe that Herod will rejoice that this, this great king of the Jews is coming. And they, but they radically misunderstand who they're talking to. Right? This, is, this is not that guy. And so Herod gets this news, and he immediately goes to work with dealing with this threat to him and his power. Right? So he gathers up the chief priests and the scribes. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because they're scared of him or if he had a little bit of favor with them, maybe because of the work he did on the temple, they're happy to help out. And he says, okay, I need to know where this guy is. Where, where is this king going to come? So they look at the scriptures and they find this prophecy from Micah that we read. Right, it says, and they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. This is from Micah 5. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now the reference to this prophecy shows us two things that are really interesting. First of all, Herod is not under the illusion that this is just some random guy aspiring to the throne. Like, he thinks and believes from what the wise men said that this is the Messiah, and he still wants to kill him. He asks them, where will the Christ be born so we can take that guy out? Like, this, this is a whole nother level than just taking out a political rival. It's like, yeah, who's that guy that God's going to send? Let's find out where he's going to be born so we can get rid of him. And then the scribes and the priests, the religious leaders, who should be looking for this guy, anticipating him, helping the people get ready for him, they're like, here you go. Like, take him out. It's great. Like, I never, to be honest with you guys, when I read this, I never realized, I never saw that as clearly as I did this time. Like, they know it's not just a guy. They're specifically looking for the Christ, God's Messiah. And the scribes and the priests, they know what Herod's going to do. The wise men, they're from far away. We can maybe give them a pass. The scribes and the high priest absolutely know what's going to happen. They know what they're doing. It's just incredible to see the darkness and the hardness of the hearts here. What they are willing to do, not just Herod, but also the religious leaders in Israel, what they are willing to do for their own safety, for their own prosperity, for their own power. On a brighter note, though, the other thing that this shows us is it's another confirmation of who Jesus is. All right, part of what Matthew's been doing is he's been telling us who Christ is in the line of David, son of Abraham, all this thing. He's trying to help us see, this is the guy, this is the one. And this is just another piece of evidence for that. Right? On the one hand, Herod, the scribes, and the priests, they all can see this. They can all see that this is the guy, based on what the wise men say. And we see a direct fulfillment of a prophecy hundreds of years before. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. So you've got kind of the predictive thing, right, that Jesus fulfills this, this thing he has to, this box he has to check to be the guy. But also you can see even these guys who are his enemies can recognize it. They can see it. They know. They know. So on the one hand, we see the hardness of Herod and the religious leader of Israel. On the other hand, we get this incredible confirmation, just another reassurance that, hey, no, like, this is the guy. This, this is the one that you have to pay attention to. This is the one that we've been waiting for. Let's press on in the story. 
In verse 7 we read, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And you have found him. Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So Herod's now armed with this knowledge of Jesus' birthplace. So he's got the location, right? Okay, got him pinned down to there. Now he uses that to deceive the wise men, right? He helps them out and says, hey guys, like, narrow down your search. It's going to be in this, this area. I got you. Helping out. But then he uses that to find out something he needs from them, right? About, about how old am I looking for here? When, when did you first see this? So he can get an approximate age of who's he looking for in terms of royal. Where, where, where is this threat age-wise so I know the pool of people I'm dealing with? Right? And then he, he leverages their longing to see Christ, to worship Christ, to aid in his destruction of Christ. At this point in Herod's life, he's got a lot going on. He's kind of working on succession stuff, and a lot of pe- there's a lot of plots and things around his life because he's getting to the end, and people are maybe seeing opportunities. There's a lot to deal with with his family. So he's like, okay, great. I can just let these guys do the work for me. Right? He's basically using them as unwitting intelligence agents, Right? You go find this out, and you're in it. People will talk to you. You're great. <laughs> you're, you're perfect for this job. And he sends them off to find out who this rival to the throne is. And the wise ones are like, awesome, great. Yeah, we'll let you know. You can come, you know, come worship with us. It'll be awesome, right? They're, they're all for this. So Herod apparently can put on a pretty, pretty good act, at least good enough for these purposes. Then we get to the rest of the story, right? So after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So a few little things to note here, guys, before we move into kind of, okay, what do we do with this, right? Like, what does this mean for us? Um, first of all, you know, the star leads them there, and they go into a house, right? They, they weren't at the manger scene, right? They weren't at your nativity scene. They came a few months later. They had this long trip ahead of them from when they saw the star. So, but Mary and Joseph are still in Bethlehem. They're not back home yet. They traveled to Bethlehem for taxes. So basically, they're still in Bethlehem, still taking care of things there, but they found a more permanent lodging. So a little time has passed from the manger scene when the shepherds showed up and all that kind of deal. We don't know exactly how long, um, but maybe, maybe a year, maybe less, somewhere in there. Still a young baby. Right? And when they go, they fall down and they worship him, and they offer him these treasures, these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these gifts... We don't know how much the Magi actually understood. They know he's a king. They know he's a great king because he's worth coming all this way for. But these gifts all have, uh, make reference to aspects of Jesus' ministry. Gold is representative of a king, right? This is a royal gift. Gold is, is what you give to a king. Frankincense is used in priestly duties, right? You offer frankincense. It's one of the offerings that's made, and it's representative of his role as a mediator, his priestly role. And then myrrh is an embalming, an embalming spice, one you use to preserve bodies for burial after their death. 
So in giving this, this valuable embalming sacrifice, they're also pointing forward to what this king is one day going to do. He's not just going to be a king and a priest. He's also going to be a sacrifice. And following their worship and their gifting, they're warned in a dream, probably by an angel. That's what we've seen so far in the story. Joseph gets an angel, comes to him. Mary gets an angel, comes to him. We don't know exactly, but that very well could be an angel comes and tells him, hey guys, that Herod, don't, don't buy it. <laughs> go, the, go the other way. They couldn't figure it out on their own, so God helps them out and says, let's, let's not do that, guys. And sends them on their way. So, that's the story, Right? Not a, not a trumped-up baby shower, but a really a political rivalry, right? A, a desperate, paranoid, narcissistic king trying to stomp out a rival. So what are we supposed to see from this? There's three primary things. The first is, well, it's not just a conflict between kings, it is a contrast in kings. And that's what this really does. The contrast is what shows us what we need to see. And the first thing we see is a better king. Right? Herod is maniacally obsessed with his own power. He will kill anyone to preserve what he has, to preserve his own control, to seek out his own glory. He will spend anyone and anything on himself. Even here, I mean, we're talking at this point, he's at the end of his life. He's 69, 70. He's not going to last much longer. And even that close to it, he is paranoid about an infant and what that infant's going to do. Chances are he's going to be dead before this kid's even a viable option for the throne. And he can't even tolerate that. Cannot abide it. You can see that just the desperation. Like, this is, not a, this is not a happy man. This is not a satisfied man. This is not a man at peace. This is a man that is desperate clinging, grasping for these little bits of power and influence that he has and trying to hold on to them no matter what the cost. Now, it's easy in light of what we've heard about Herod to kind of see him as something that's way over there from us, right? We're not doing this kind of stuff. This is the kind of stuff we don't imagine ourselves ever doing, so it can be very easy for us to get dismissive about figures like this. He's not quite your normal run-of-the-mill guy. And that's fair. But we see the same sort of impulse with people who have power in our day, right? Whether it's politicians, whether it's business owners, right? The, 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 the grasping for control, the using people to gain and maintain power, using all of that stuff for yourself to get and keep things for you. But again, it gets closer to us than that. It's not just people with power. The only difference between people with power and us is the magnitude, right? We all have this same impulse. This is part of our sinful nature, part of our flesh. There's a saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's close to right. You know, it's hard to handle a lot of power. But it's not the power that corrupts. The power just amplifies your ability to broadcast the corruption that's already there, right? It's not creating anything new. You just have a lot more power to project that corruption. You have more to protect and lose and more tools to, at your disposal. Guys, the truth is our sinful flesh wants to rule. 
We want autonomy. We want freedom. We want to determine things for ourselves. And, for being honest, we want to do it for other people too if we can. At a minimum, we want our freedom. I want to do what I want to do. And if I can get it, I want to tell everybody else what to do. This is universal. This is part of our sinful nature. We all have things we desperately want to control that we cannot afford to lose. We're always clawing and trying to hold on to our sovereignty, our autonomy, our sufficiency. And we are willing to sacrifice quite a great deal to keep it. The problem is, though, our flesh... Not only is, is our impulse of our flesh to do that, but it also, our flesh rules like Herod. Right? We all have this idea that, oh, if I could control it, I would be the benevolent leader. I would be great. No, that's not how it works, guys. In our sin, we use our power and authority for ill. Right? We use our control for ill. It, our flesh acts in the same deranged, paranoid, narcissistic bent that Herod did. This is one of the ways we can understand sin and deepen our understanding of sin. Sin is going against what God commanded, right? It's, it's us asserting our autonomy. I get to decide what is good for me to do. But our sin is never happens in a vacuum. It never just affects us. It always affects those around us. It absolutely always does. Think of the most private, secret, seemingly isolated sin you can. It hurts the people around you. It absolutely does. And in pursuing that autonomy, you are wrecking and sacrificing people around you for you to have that freedom. Every single one. Every single one. Think about it. Think about how you relate to your spouse. When you relate to your spouse for what you can get out of them, for what they do for you, rather than relating to them to build them up. I know how we interact with our kids. Right? How many times do you parent in such a way that you're not actually parenting for your kids' ultimate you're good, you're parenting for the kind of image they give people of you or for your own temporary comfort or relief? I speak from experience. I, I do it. I hate it, but I do it. Right? That's, again, that's me sacrificing other people for myself. We do it with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We do it with our church when we come to them with entitlement, when our, our view and perspective on our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ is, what can they do for me? What have they done for me? Or how have they hurt me? And everything is oriented on what they have done for you and not about what God has given you for their sake and what he's called you to for their sake. We can do this with how we look at the world. We can look at the world and despise the discomfort that they cause us, that they create for us in pursuing the things that they do. But it's really not driven out of love for them, it's driven out of our own sense of comfort. We want things to be the way that we like. We'd rather do that than rejoicing that we have the chance to love our enemies and to bear witness to them of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. You can name me any sin and I can show you how it tracks back to this flesh wanting to rule, this, your flesh wanting to be in charge and to be autonomous and sufficient and not have to be dependent on the rule and reign of King Jesus. So the truth is, guys, in our flesh, we are far more like 
King Herod than we would like to think or would, would even dare imagine when we think about what he's done. Because we do the same sort of thing in small little ways all the time. We sacrifice other people for the sake of what we want, our glory, our control, our freedom, our power. So that's one king, but we're given another king here, King Jesus. And Jesus is not like this. Jesus is not like this at all. We're going to see this more and more as we watch his life and ministry unfold through the book of Matthew. But we even begin to see it now. And it starts with this prophecy that we see about him. The, the, the end of it is, says that, speaking of Bethlehem, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That word shepherd is important. Right? This, is, this shepherd is, is basically God's idea of what the rule and reign over his people should look like. And it's, it's, he uses it all the time. He uses it in the Old Testament. He rebukes Israel's leaders for being horrible shepherds, for being shepherds who act more like butchers. And then the word pastor, that literally comes from shepherd. Pastoral, think about pastoral. Like that's, that's what this comes from. This, this idea of shepherding is what God uses pretty consistently to talk about the care of his people. And in a way, it's an odd choice because shepherds are not great. They're not powerful. They're on the lower rungs of society. They're not rich. They're not popular. They're none of those things. None of the things that we typically associate with, with ruling or leading but what do shepherds do? They give themselves for the sheep. They exist to protect, care for, nurture, and care for the sheep. Jesus himself will later say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Right? This could not be more different than Herod. Herod uses everybody who's under his sway for himself. Everybody gets exploited for Herod. The shepherd king, what does he do? He lays himself down for the sheep. It's the complete opposite. And that's what this passage is showing us. Like, king Herod, like, this is, what, this is what the kings of the world do. This is, what we, this is what the flesh, this is what the sin does. The king you've been given, God's king, God's Messiah, his anointed one, is an entirely different kind of king. He is a king who gives of himself for the good of his people. Not that doesn't exploit them for his own good. And you can see it like just played out in this. With Herod, we see a whole city walking on eggshells because they're terrified of how he's going to react to the situation. You see him manipulating and exploiting others. And just a little further in Matthew, we're going to see him go even farther and get more despicable than what we've seen so far. And in Jesus, it's, it's amazing. We see these people voluntarily coming to him, going through all this, this hard travel and then laying down these rich gifts for him because, because of who he is. Right? This elicits an entirely different response because of the kind of king that he is. And you see it because he, he, he's drawn these men to himself. The, the king who's lying in the manger is also the king that upholds the universe by the word of his power. Right? And you see his graciousness and goodness already by bringing these kings, these pagan foreign kings who would have no knowledge of the true God, and he draws them to himself. This is, he is the good king. He is the good shepherd who gives of himself for his people. And obviously this culminates in the cross. Right? His whole life is about living 
righteousness that we need and then going and dying the death that we deserve and rising to give us life. Everything about his incarnate ministry is to give good to us. That is the kind of king that this is. The wise men point us to the second thing we need to realize, and that is the fact that not only are there two different kings, there's two different kingdoms or reigns at play here. And Jesus' kingdom is far greater than Herod's. And when you think about Herod, I mean, he seems like this, he's this powerful king and how's all this good stuff going for him. He's, in one way, he's been really successful. On the other hand, he's, he's illegitimate. He's a puppet of an empire. He's about to die and lose everything he does have in a year or two. Right? He, he has to keep his power through fear and intimidation. It's really not that great and that grand when you really back out and stop and think about it. And it's limited to this tiny little conquered people in Palestine. But what we begin to see here with the, the, the wise men is that Jesus' king, his kingdom is far greater. Right? Matthew writes his gospel primarily to a Jewish audience who would, would have been expecting a, a Jewish Messiah who's going to restore Palestinian Jewish kingdom. Right? And so he's planting the seeds now that like, hey, your expectations are way too small. You know, in the, in the formal liturgical calendar that some church traditions use, there's a day called Epiphany. It's this Friday, actually, January 6th. And it celebrates the coming of the wise men. Epiphany means appearing. And why it's called the Epiphany is because it it's celebrates Jesus' first incarnate appearing to the Gentiles. It's a celebration that, that the gospel is not just for Israel, but for the entire world. The universal nature of this kingdom. Jesus is not only a good king, but he is a good king for every tribe and every tongue and every nation. This is a little foreshadowing of the Great Commission, just as we saw last week with Emmanuel. Emmanuel is this foreshadowing of Christ with us, right? He says, lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. Here, this is the, the foreshadowing of make disciples of all nations, right? That the gospel is going to go forward to every tribe and every people, everyone is going to be offered to come into and depend in and rely on the benevolent reign of Jesus. It's so much bigger, so much broader than the, any kingdom of this world. But it's also unusual, right? It's not just bigger, but it's kind of upside down because the people who get invited in are the last ones you'd think, right? The, the wise men in the story are the last people who should be brought into this kingdom. They are pagans. They're hundreds of miles away, so they're not Jews, they might even be priests of foreign gods. These are, these are people way on the outskirts, not the people you're expecting, right? Who's on the other side? The Jewish religious leaders. If anybody should be in, it should be them. Even Herod, he's a Jew. He's practicing to some degree. He missed a lot of it, but, well, you know, he's not, not really dialed in there, but theoretically he is, right? They're the guys who should qualify, right? But who gets in? It, no, because it, it, it doesn't depend on race, ethnicity, power, what you bring to the table. No, it's you're brought in by faith. And God gives these unlikely, unlikeliest of people faith, the gift of faith to come to Jesus. And this is not a one-off thing. We're going to see this throughout Jesus' ministry. All the people that you would expect, all the people that you would pick if you're starting a kingdom aren't the ones who get picked. It's all the outcasts, all the kid who's the last pick on the playground. They're all the ones that get picked. 
Because this kingdom is not about Jesus gathering up all the things that he needs. Because, no, because he's the sufficient one. He doesn't need anything. His kingdom is not about consolidating power. He has all the power. His kingdom is about giving. It's benevolent. It's about gathering a people to himself so he can bless them. Not gathering a people that can prop him up. Because he doesn't need that. He's not just some king. He is the king of kings. That totally changes the dynamic. He is a better king with a greater kingdom. So Jesus uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The last thing I want you guys to see is in this conflict of kings, Jesus' victory is absolutely inevitable. There is no open contest here. The result is not in doubt. Now, if we look at this from a human perspective, who has the advantage? Herod, like 100%. This dude has been ruling for 30 years. He has put down political rival after political rival. He has won every single time. He's the sitting king. He has the military. He has all the power. He has the favor of the, the overlords that he can call on leverage. He has everything. Who's his rival? An infant who has parents. That's it. Not only that, Herod has the jump on him. Like, Mary and Joseph don't have any idea that they're in any danger yet. Right? Like, if you're just looking at this from the human scales and you've got to put a bet on this, who's going to come out on top? The smart money is all on Herod. Am I right? Yeah. Like, this is no contest. There is, you cannot humanly explain how Jesus doesn't get killed in this scenario. Right? Like, there's a whole bunch of things that, like, you guys realize, Bethlehem is only six miles away from Jerusalem. Herod's six miles away from Jesus. There, with temple guards and all kinds of people at his disposal. How does this not happen? Well, it doesn't happen because of who Jesus is. This little infant is God, and he is sovereign over Herod. Herod only reigns because this little infant ordains that he does. And the second that he stops, Herod's reign will end. It's so crazy. Because <laughs> you know? when you look at it on the human plane, it, just, it, it doesn't add up, but it's true. This is all that stuff we talked about with the incarnation. This is why it's so important for us to understand it. And guys, this should remind us that this is not just a one-off thing for this story. God is always accomplishing exactly what he intends in the world. God has never had to have a plan B. He's never had to adjust anything. So when we look out at the world and see things going in particular ways that we don't like, has anybody had that happen recently? Yes, I know you all have, right? These last few years, all of us, every single person, doesn't matter where you land on things, you've been greatly dissatisfied with something in the world. Right? You felt that it was wrong and things should be different. Well, none of those things are outside of God's control. None of them are a threat to what he's doing. None of them are a threat to the advance of the gospel and the way that he's working in his kingdom. Every single one of them rises and falls as he permits, period. So church, this should comfort us. As we walk through a world, the church has always gone through ebbs and flows. There are times when things are pretty good, pretty easy, pretty nice for us. And there are times when things have been very, very hard. And it's been very, very difficult. And in neither of those times has God been surprised by anything. 
Has he had to adjust anything? Has he had to change anything? In all of those times and everything in between, he has worked exactly the way that he intends. And he has worked for the good of his people, even when we can't wrap our heads around why it is this way in the moment. So as we leave a year and go into a new one, where we don't know what it holds, might be better, might be worse, personally, globally, we don't know. What we do know is that everything that happens will be ordained by the sovereign God. The sovereign God is not just sovereign, he's not just powerful, but he is also good. He is that shepherd king who rules and reigns for the good of his people. So we can rest in that. We can have peace no matter what may come our way and how things break in the world or in our lives. We can trust in God's gracious sovereignty. And this means his win, his victory, is never in doubt. Nothing ever puts the gospel at risk or the kingdom of God at risk. It may look that way to us on the surface, but it never is. This is there's not some big cosmic boxing match between God and Jesus, and we're in like the 11th round, and who's going to make it? That is such a misconception of what's going on in the world. God has won. Christ has won. He has conquered all. And he is ruling and reigning everything, even as we speak. Everything happens exactly as he intends for it to. We may not understand why he does it in particular ways, but that's 100% true, and we can rest in it. We can rest in it. You know, we're going to see, and this, this story is going to get worse before it gets better. Things are going to be really touch and go. There's going to be tragedy and suffering. And yet, in all of that, the purpose of King Jesus is never altered. All right. So those are big things we draw from the story. Now I want to talk lastly about our response. What, what do we do in light of the conflict of these kings? King Herod as a representative of the, the kings of this world, of, as a representative of our very own flesh. And King Jesus, the good shepherd king. Well, we see two responses here in our passage. Right? And this is why, despite their naivete about Herod, um, why I questioned why, if we could really call them wise men, given how uh, badly they misjudged him, we absolutely can call the Magi wise men. Because they may have gotten Herod horribly wrong, but they got Jesus right. And if you get everything else in the world wrong, right? If you misread every situation and you look like a fool to the world, but you get Jesus right and you recognize that you are insufficient and the best place for you to be is to be submitted to him and to depend on him for everything, you are the wisest man there is because of God's work. You something God gives you. It's not you, right? And you can nail everything. You can call every political outcome, how everything's going to happen, nail it in the stock market, whatever you want. Nail everything, where people are amazed at your brilliance, and if you get Jesus wrong, you are an utter fool. Because our response to Jesus shapes everything. It shapes absolutely the only thing that's absolutely essential for us, which is our fellowship with God and being restored to life. And we see this response, right? The, the Magi devoted themselves to Jesus. God gave them the gift of faith when they saw this sign in the heavens. And whatever God showed them with that, they trusted it. And we can see it because they trusted it. They went on this journey. They came to Jesus. And I love the way that 
Matthew puts it. He says they, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. It's a horrible sentence, right? If your kid writes this and you're like, in for homework, you're like, no, go back and change it. You're not turning this in. This is awful. They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Don't write like that. But you see this with Paul sometimes, right? They just, they, they're so excited, they just have to p- keep putting adjectives and adverbs in there because that's the only way they can do it. Right? They're exceedingly rejoicing with exceedingly great joy. They are ecstatic over this little baby because they, in God's grace, he's allowed them to know what it means that there is a king, that there is a king who will be for his people and will do for his people and be for his people everything they need. And they have found him. So everything else can go wrong. Who cares? They have the one thing that they need. So they gladly make this wrong, long, dangerous trip. They gladly give these rich, royal gifts. Why? Because they believe. Because they believe what God has shown them about who he is. And if you have him, you don't need anything else. And then, of course, we see Herod in contrast. Herod, who should know more, right? He's got the whole Old Testament. He's got chief priests and scribes on call who can tell him about it, right? He should be waiting in anticipation for this king. He should know so much more about what it's going to mean. And what does he do? It's like, no, I would rather hold on to my sufficiency, my autonomy, my control than depend fully on Jesus. And I don't care what that means. That's where he lands. And this is ultimately the decision everybody makes with Jesus, right? Like this is, this is the, the demarcation in the human race is this. It doesn't have anything to do with race or money or nationality or age or anything like this. This is the demarcation, right? Do you depend on Jesus or do you depend on yourself? Herod depends on himself. He would rather scratch and claw and kill God's chosen Messiah to hold on to nine, the last nine months of being a puppet ruler, right? He'd rather cling to what he has than to be the recipient of all that God gives us through Christ. It's heartbreaking. I mean, as much as you hate the guy and you see what he's doing, it's despicable. It's absolutely, it's, it's pathetic is what it is. It's, it's, it's pitiable. It's, it's foolish. Like what... Don't, don't do this. This is, so, this is so dumb. You're trading in the greatest thing in the world for, for nothing, for dust and ashes. Right, the same thing lies between us. Right? We all respond either as the Magi did or as Herod did. And for those of us who are Christians who, who have responded as the Magi, who have depended on Christ, we need to realize that our flesh is still there. Right, so we, we have, you know, we're in Christ, we're secure, but day to day, the flesh is still there. Paul talks about this in Romans, right? He talks about how he delights in God and the inner man, but then his flesh still wants to go do all this other stuff, and he feels this tension, right? We live in that tension. And so one of the things that this should do for us is it should make us aware, right? When we feel that pull to sin, when we feel that pull to, to fight for our control and to control other people and to use other people for our benefit, to recognize what that is. What it promises is not good and it is not what you need. What you need is what Jesus gives you. Don't buy the lies of sin. When we do, we're, we're reacting just like Herod, right? And, and 
we know better, right? Because we've tasted of his goodness. We know what he offers, and we know he never fails to deliver on what he has promised. And if you're here this morning and you have never trusted Christ, it's so important to know um, that where you stand. Like, you stand in the same place that Herod did. You are left with what you can hold on to, what you can accomplish, what you can do, and it is not enough. It will not satisfy you. It will not sustain you. It will not uphold you in judgment. It will not bring you back to life. It will not do any of the things that you actually need. Do not be so obsessed with your own glory and what you can do that you despise what God gives you as a gift in Christ. We will either cling to our autonomy and our self-sufficiency or we will see the hopelessness of that and come to Jesus with faith that says, Jesus, you must be my sufficiency because I am not sufficient. Jesus, you must rule me well because I cannot rule myself except to the end of destruction. That's the only way I'm taking myself. You must keep me because I cannot keep myself. That's ultimately what this passage shows us. It shows us to come to and depend on Jesus because he is the good shepherd king who lays down his life to give you all that you need and all that you cannot get for yourself. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for just confronting us. I know, um, and I, I... It grieves my heart to see how much I do this, how much I want to control things, how much I use other people for myself, how much uh, my flesh acts like Herod when I've been given, like, when I know what I've been given in Christ. Father, I pray for the rest of my brothers and sisters who are in that same spot who see themselves, choose sin, that they know is foolish, and they know that Christ is enough, and yet they find the flesh to be weak. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit to, to depend on Christ, to depend on Christ, to, to trust his sufficiency, to trust what he gives, to, to gladly and joyfully bow the knee to him and sacrifice our autonomy to be ruled by the good shepherd king. Help us because our flesh is weak. And Lord, for anyone who's here who has not done that, who's trying desperately to be enough, to be okay through what they do, by performing well enough, by getting what they need out of other people, Lord, I pray that you would give them the faith to see Jesus the way that the Magi did, as this glorious, wonderful thing, the one thing that they need, so that they would come to him and find rest. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.